set free And Lord, give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. As we approach John chapter 18 this morning, so if you'll remain standing and take your Bible, turning to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, or just a moment ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago, and our text this morning takes place at the end of the week. So a week has gone by, we're just hours now away from the cross, and this is what we read in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, if you'll follow along as I read, beginning now in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You may be seated. Chapter 30, verse 31, chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us his purpose in writing his gospel. It is so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. And so true to his purpose, in chapters 18 through 21, this last section of his gospel, John records the events surrounding Jesus' betrayal, arrest, his trials, crucifixion, and resurrection, and he does so in a way that emphasizes Jesus' divine sovereignty, that our Lord was not a victim of circumstances beyond his control. And this is why in John's account, he omits things the other gospel writers include, and he includes things that they did not. For example... John omits Jesus' agonizing prayer in the garden where he asks repeatedly that, if possible, the cup be removed from him. 
But John includes Jesus' resolve to obey the Father's will when he said to Peter, The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? John also omits Judas' kiss of betrayal. But he includes something the other Gospels omit. When Judas and the armed guards and the temple police came to him, Jesus took the initiative, went forth, and said to them, Whom do you see? And only John tells us that when Jesus answered them, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Only John tells of Jesus' command to the soldiers to let the disciples go. And from John, we learn that Peter was the disciple who swung his sword and that Malchus was the servant of the high priest whose ear Peter cut off. And although Judas and the armed soldiers succeeded in arresting Jesus, he was not a tragic victim who was helpless before his captors. Rather, he was the good shepherd willingly laying down his life for his sheep. And what John conveys to his narrative is that as God incarnate, Jesus was always in absolute control of all the events of his life, including all the circumstances surrounding his death. And so throughout John's account, we see, in the, sovereign, we see the sovereignty, the power, the majesty, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as he is betrayed and arrested to be executed. As one man said, here supremely we see the purpose of God worked out, and here supremely is the glory of Jesus displayed. And as we come this morning to chapter 18, the ministry of the upper room is over. On the Passover table are, are the cold leftovers of the Passover meal. Jesus had demonstrated his... De- to his disciples, the humble, loving service they were to give to one another by washing their feet. Judas is gone. He had left to make the final arrangements to betray our Lord. Jesus had taught the 11 remaining disciples their final lessons and then prayed for his own glory, for his disciples, and for all of us who have followed since. So the prayer of John 17 has ended. And according to Matthew, after singing a hymn, Jesus and his little flock of disciples leave the upper room and and Jerusalem as Jesus boldly makes his way now to the cross. And now at last, the the final series of events which will culminate in the the death of the Lamb of God began. You'll notice verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, And the phrase, these words, refers to all of chapters 13 through 17, Jesus' upper room discourse and his high priestly prayer. After he had spoken all these things, Jesus, who at the end of John chapter 14 had said, rise, let us go from here, now actually left the upper room. Looking back at verse 1, we see that he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And so after leaving the upper room, Jesus and the eleven disciples descended Mount Zion, crossed the brook Kidron, made their way up the western slope of the Mount of Olives to a very special garden called Gethsemane, or the Olive Press. And as we saw last week, in Gethsemane, Jesus agonized in a bloody sweat in a way that we cannot begin to comprehend as he wrestled in prayer over the realization that he would shortly take upon himself the full magnitude and defilement of man's sin, that his father would turn away from him and he would experience the full force and fury of his father's wrath against sin. 
And yet he ended his prayer with, yet not what I will, but what you will. But John doesn't record any of this. All he says is, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And no doubt, as John wrote this, he could vividly remember all that happened that night. He and Peter and James had had seen more than, than any of the others. And so in the early morning darkness on Friday, Jesus and his 11 disciples went to the garden once again because he knew, Jesus knew that Judas would look for him there. Notice verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas has not been heard from since he abruptly left after the foot washing recorded in John chapter 13. And without mentioning Mentioning him by name, Jesus spoke of him in John 17 as the son of destruction who was lost. But although Judas was lost, spiritually speaking, physically he was very much alive and fully committed to handing Jesus over to the religious authorities. And John tells us in verse 2 that Judas also knew the place. He knew the place because he had often heard Jesus teaching and, and praying there. And what a great privilege Judas had to have sat in the garden with Jesus, listening to him, make known the Father's name, but but none of it ever touched the heart of Judas. I mean, after the many times of prayer and spiritual instruction, he must have witnessed in this garden with Jesus that he could use his knowledge for the purpose of betraying his master. It just shows the extreme wickedness and the hardness of Judas's heart. Judas knew the garden for spiritual reasons, and yet he used his knowledge for the worst treachery and wickedness possible. And John wants us to know that Jesus knew full well. Jesus knew full well that Judas knew the place and knew that that's where Jesus would be, and yet Jesus went there anyway. On previous occasions, Jesus had avoided his enemies. In John 8, We read that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then in John 12, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But now, at this point, the hour had come. And so he went to the very place he knew Judas would lead his enemies. Jesus made it easy for them. I mean, our Lord was not outfoxed or deceived. He was not surprised. Not at all. The the good shepherd did not go there only to be trapped. He wasn't seized like a helpless victim. No, he went there to lay down his life as a willing sacrifice. As Jesus said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So here again, John wants us to know that Jesus went to the garden and to his death boldly, willingly. He was in control. And Jesus could have gone to the garden alone. But he didn't. He took the disciples along with him. Well, why? Well, because he wanted them to see that he was in control. And that he was voluntarily giving up his life. 
Now, having described the time and the setting, John now describes the arrest. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And John makes it clear that Judas had officially switched sides. And he comes with, he actually leads the mob coming to arrest Jesus. And so at the very time when Peter, James, and John were sleeping in the garden, Judas and men from the Jewish religious establishment were marching and planning a murder. And we're told here that Judas procured a band of soldiers, referring to Roman soldiers. And the word band can be translated cohort or detachment. And a full cohort of Roman soldiers was led by a tribune or a commander, or some translations have it, captain. Literally it means leader of a thousand. Because a cohort consisted of 1,000 men, 240 cavalry and 760 infantry. But in practice, it was often only 600 men. And many think the number of soldiers who came with Judas was far less than that. But the Romans used surprisingly large numbers of soldiers, even in dealing with a single person, especially when they were afraid of a riot or some type of uprising. I mean, for example, in Acts 23, 470 soldiers were dispatched to protect one single man, the Apostle Paul. And of course, Roman troops were stationed in Caesarea, but during the Passover, when Jerusalem was filled with people, they were brought to Jerusalem and stationed in the Antonia Fortress, which overlooked the temple to keep a close watch on the large crowds and to crush any mob violence as quickly as it began. These soldiers would have been ordered to accompany the temple police by Pontius Pilate since they would have been under his direct command. And of course, it's not difficult to understand why Pilate was willing to assist the Jewish authorities in this way, though he detested them. No doubt the chief priests and Pharisees had informed Pilate that this man, Jesus, was claiming to be the Messiah, or in terms Pilate would understand, the King of Israel. And with the huge crowd of pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover, Pilate would have been especially nervous about an uprising of some sort. So this detachment of soldiers was there to stop any violence or resistance on the part of Jesus' followers when the arrest was made. And Judas, we're told, also brought with them some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. This was the temple police. Uh, They were the primary arresting officers. You see, the temple authorities had a kind of private police force to keep order and to carry out its laws and verdicts. And these men were commanded by the captain of the temple guard. And according to Luke, the soldiers and temple police were also accompanied by the chief priests and elders. And so both Romans and Jews were involved. But John is the only gospel writer to mention the Roman soldiers, which may be his way of indicating that the entire world was responsible for what was about to happen. Now, even if the cohort was only 600 Roman soldiers, but then you throw in the temple police and the religious leaders, it's clear that they had assembled a massive force. And we're told they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. In other words, they had prepared for the worst. 
They expected Jesus to attempt to escape or at least to resist arrest. And so they came ready to pursue him into the darkness of the olive grove if he attempted to run. But Jesus had no intention of running and and hiding to evade rest because, again, this was all part of the sovereign plan of God. And the torches, lanterns, and weapons, that's an eyewitness touch. Only an eyewitness would have known this. And many years later, when John wrote his gospel, he no doubt could still see this scene unfolding before his very eyes. And I find it ironic and perhaps you will too, that they came to seek out the light of the world with torches and lanterns. Well, Judas provided the opportunity to arrest Jesus at the opportune time when there would be no crowd around. The religious authorities provided the temple police and Pilate the Roman soldier. So with Judas acting as their guide, this massive force that had been assembled made their way to the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And, and this must have been quite a sight. I mean, it was something really like a, a torchlight parade streaming out of Jerusalem, down Mount Zion, the brook Kidron, up the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. No doubt they could be seen from a distance away. And they came armed to the teeth to effect Jesus' arrest. Jesus, who, who never so much as lifted his finger against anyone. I mean, the only occasions in the Gospels where Jesus had even come close to something like that was when he cleansed the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and, and driving out those who bought and sold with a whip. But all the men in that, in that force, that massive force, no doubt, had heard of Jesus' power. No doubt some of them had seen it on display in the temple. I mean, they knew that he was a miracle worker. They knew he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody in and around Jerusalem at that time knew about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so they were very aware of Jesus' power, and they were also very aware of his popularity with the people. And so they sent an army, literally, to, to take an unarmed Galilean carpenter and teacher. John doesn't record it, but from the other Gospels, we know that Judas had prearranged a signal by which he would positively identify Jesus. When Judas kissed Jesus, the arresting officers would know that he was their man and then they would seize him. We know from the other Gospels that Judas did indeed kiss Jesus. But John leaves the kiss of Judas out of his account because he's not concerned to tell us everything that happened, but rather to show Jesus' complete control of the situation. And besides that, Judas's kiss was both unnecessary and irrelevant. And really the only purpose it served was to reveal the character of Judas. Because it's by our actions that our character is revealed. I mean, how fitting that our Lord's betrayer would do so with a kiss. When he used the sign of love and affection as the means to hand over Jesus to his enemy. But the amusing thing is, things don't go according to the prearranged plan of Judas and the Jews. Now instead of Judas identifying our Lord deceitfully with a kiss, Jesus identified himself 
As Judas, the Jews, and the Roman soldiers arrived, Jesus took charge, bringing to pass the events that followed. Again, he was not a helpless victim. Far from it. We read in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. And so John tells us Jesus knew all that would happen to him. And this means much more than he merely understood each step in the process as it unfolded. This means that he knew ahead of time everything that was going to happen. And he he had known it as the Son of God from all eternity. Because he is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. All that would happen. That phrase speaks of, of all the circumstances of his sufferings and death. All the things decreed by God. Agreed upon by the Son and the eternal covenant of grace, predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, and foretold again and again by Jesus himself. In John 6 we read, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He had told his disciples in in Matthew 17, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days he will rise. And then in John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew exactly every single detail that was going to happen and he had known it. He had anticipated it every moment of his life. For Jesus, there were no surprises. Nothing took him by surprise. Not Judas' betrayal, not his arrest, Nothing. He knew when they would come. He knew why they would come. Notice verse 4. Fully in control of the situation, John tells us, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you see? He came forward. That is, he came out of the garden. He didn't wait for them to find him. No, he took the initiative. He came forward and met them face to face at the entrance to the garden to openly identify himself. I mean, once, when they wanted to take him by force and make him a king, he withdrew from them. But now that he was to be arrested, brutalized, scourged, and crucified, Jesus boldly went out to meet them. And not only did he boldly go out to meet them, he was the first to speak. He didn't wait to be challenged or commanded to surrender. He boldly came forward to meet the soldiers and police head on. And speaking to the entire group, not Judas in particular, Jesus said to them, Whom do you seek? Or who are you looking for? Now, just the the effect of this alone must have been startling to the soldiers. And they probably could not believe that the bold man standing and speaking before them could be the prisoner they came to apprehend. I mean, they had to realize at that moment that they were not dealing with an ordinary man. I mean, these were not the actions or the words of a criminal or a guilty man. Or a man who was in fear of being arrested. I mean, think about it for a moment. This massive group of armed men, heavily armed men, 
had come out to arrest someone who they most likely thought would attempt to flee. But that's not what they found, not at all. Rather, they found themselves confronted by a commanding figure who, instead of running away from them, actually came out to meet them and presented himself, not as someone who was fearful and intimidated by what was happening, but rather as someone who was completely in control of everything that was now taking place. I mean, here again, John wants us to see that nothing lies outside the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he said to them, whom do you see? I mean, obviously Jesus knows the answer. They're seeking him, and more specifically to arrest him and to take his life. That was the intention of the chief priests and Pharisees all along. Whom do you see? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. They sought Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, little did they know that he was God incarnate, their creator, their sustainer, and their eternal judge. The best they could do was Jesus of Nazareth. And it's clear from the fact mentioned by Matthew and Mark that Judas would identify Jesus with the kiss that that many of them didn't know our Lord by sight. And apparently the kiss had not yet been given. There was probably no time for it because Jesus came forward and questioned them so suddenly and so quickly that they were taken by surprise. And and this prepared the way for the miracle which followed. Whom do you see? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. I mean, he 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 boldly makes it very clear that he is the person they're seeking. He said, I am he. But actually the words in the Greek text are literally, I am. The word he is not found in the original. And so Jesus' response is literally, I am. Of course, we know that is the Old Testament covenant name of God by which he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And so with these words, Jesus declared his deity. He meant not only that he was Jesus of Nazareth, but he was Yahweh as well. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am. And then before John tells us what happens next, you'll notice he adds, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. What a sad sentence that is. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. This is is Judas' final appearance in the Gospel of John, which doesn't record Judas' subsequent suicide. I mean, think about it. Only a few hours earlier, he had been seated with Jesus and the eleven. They're in the upper room. And now John says Judas was standing with them, and he was acting as their guide. He was standing with the enemies of Jesus. He wasn't standing with the 11 disciples who were at risk of being arrested because they were standing with Christ. He was standing with the enemies of Christ. And in reality, Judas was the one at greatest risk that night. The eternal risk of his soul. Because to stand with the world against the Lord Jesus Christ is to put your soul at risk. But to stand with Jesus against the world, well, that is the place of eternal safety and security. 
Judas betrayed the Lord of glory, sold him out for a measly 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, were useless to him after he received them. But in reality, Judas sold his own soul. You know, Jesus once asked, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And it's important for us to understand that Judas's role in the divine plan was not something apart from his own desire. Judas was not merely a helpless pawn in a divine drama. He was no robot programmed to betray Jesus against his will. All that Judas did, he did freely, he did willingly, he did deliberately, and he did it in the face of divine mercy and grace. Judas freely chose to do what he did, and therefore he was fully accountable for his actions. He had every opportunity to turn from his sin, but he hardened his heart. In his arrogance and pride, he hardened his heart and he refused to repent. I mean, it's tragic. Because this was a man who for three years had been a constant companion of Jesus. This was a man who had seen our Lord's miracles, heard his teaching, had enjoyed the benefit of of Christ's private instruction, had professed to be a believer, and had even done many works and preached in Jesus' name. And this is very sobering. Because if a man could be one of the twelve for three years and not only hear the Lord Jesus, but also witness his miracles... I mean, if a man who had experienced all of that could betray him, then it is certainly possible for a person to be in the church among God's people today in a context of which the Word of God is faithfully preached and yet not actually be a child of God, but rather as someone who is, as one old Puritan put it, an almost Christian which is not a Christian at all. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. He stood side by side with the enemies of Christ. But then notice what happened when Jesus declared his name. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus said the words, I am, when he declared the covenant name of God, a force radiated from him like the explosive blast from a bomb. I mean, when a bomb goes off, whatever or whoever is nearby feels the shockwave of the blast, the the power of the concussion, that invisible shockwave that can kill a person in an instant. And when Jesus said the words, I am, It was as though a bomb exploded, sending out a shockwave of his omnipotent power and glory, like like the flash that knocked Paul to the ground on the road to Damascus. And it knocked the hundreds of fully armed soldiers and police to the ground before him. And obviously Jesus controlled the magnitude and velocity of it, or it could easily have been so powerful that it would have killed every single one of them. It could have destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The entire city on the hill across from him could have easily 
crumbled at the power of the words, I am, just as if an atomic bomb had been detonated or a massive earthquake had struck. The power of his words could have caused the foundations of the earth to crumble and the stars to fall from the skies. It could have caused the entire universe to collapse as it will happen at the end of time. But on this occasion, Jesus was determined to die for the sins of the world and so he controlled the force of the shockwave and it didn't hurt anyone. It just sent them backwards and to the ground. He simply spoke the name of God, his name. And they were down on the ground, all of them. Judas, the soldiers, the temple police, the religious leaders. They just all went down like dominoes. He didn't strike them with his hand. There was no need to. He simply spoke two monosyllables and they were completely overcome. I, I, I read a few men that said, well, what happened is they were so startled, they all stepped back, and when they did, their legs and swords and things got tangled up, and they all fell down, just all of them. I don't see that happening with Roman soldiers. It's ridiculous. This was nothing but a display of, of his divine majesty and a demonstration of his almighty power and his true identity. I am, he said. And this demonstrates just how powerless Jesus' enemies were when confronted with the power of God. And this undeniably demonstrates that Jesus could have used his power to prevent his arrest, but he chose not to. As one commentator said, this relates the great power which Jesus breathed with a single word that he might learn, that we might learn that the ungodly had no power over him except so far as he permitted. He replies mildly that it is he whom they seek, and yet, as if they had been struck by a violent hurricane, or rather by lightning, he prostrates them on the ground. And again, John is, is simply highlighting the power of God. John is saying, do you see, do you see, this is God here, this is God we're talking about. This is the Lord of glory. This is the great I Am. This is God incarnate. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is in absolute control. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that, that he suffered and died of his own free will. He didn't die because he couldn't help it. He didn't suffer because he could not escape. No, all the soldiers in Pilate's army, all the soldiers of Rome, could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a hair on his head if he had not given them permission. But here, as in all of his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He had set his heart on accomplishing our redemption. He loved us and he gave himself for us. And he did so cheerfully, willingly, gladly in order to make atonement for our sin. It was the joy set before him which made him endure the cross and despise the shame and give himself into the hands of his enemies. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was not a victim. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, he was a victor, fully in control of everything that was taking place. And that meant that he would be able to deliver on his promises to them, both in this life and the life to come. And so for a brief moment, 
The Lord Jesus manifested who he really is. He revealed himself to them as the I am, the almighty God. This action of our Lord left all of these men without excuse. Without excuse. As one man wrote, none of them, speaking of all of these men, none of them will be able to plead in the day of judgment. They were ignorant of the glory of his person. They cannot say that they never witnessed his miraculous power and had no opportunity given them to believe on him. This exhibition of his majesty and power and their laying hands on him afterwards makes their condemnation just. Vividly does this forewarn sinners of how utterly helpless they will be before the Christ of God in a coming day. What shall he do when he comes to judge? Who did this? When about to be judged, what shall be his might when he comes to reign? Who had this might when he was at the point to die? What indeed will be the effect of that voice when he speaks in judgment upon the wicked? What indeed? Well, apparently it took them some time to recover and and to know what to do. And so as the soldiers and officials are picking themselves up off the ground, not quite certain what had happened to them, Jesus, completely in control of the situation, helped them out by resuming the conversation. In verse 7, he repeats his question. So he asks them again, whom do you see? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So again, the Lord asked them to tell him whom they were seeking. And at this point... (laughs) At this point, wouldn't you think that they were just a little afraid or just a little hesitant to answer that question? (laughs) Because these men knew. They now knew instinctively and intuitively that they were in the presence of someone far, far greater than themselves. But in spite of the powerful effect Jesus' words just had on them, the answer was the same. I mean, it's incredible. They, they get up and proceed as if nothing at all had just happened. You see, their hard hearts remained unmoved. They were hardened just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians were after the miraculous plagues of Egypt. As soon as they got up from the ground, they proved that though frightened, they weren't deterred from their mission at all. Now they were still there seeking to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. And this teaches us something. It teaches us that just because someone might have a personal encounter with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that does not mean they will necessarily respond to the encounter in a positive or a saving way. Loved ones, we have to understand this. Faith is a gift of God. It is not the product of an irrefutable argument or an incredible display of miraculous power. And that was certainly the case here. You see, people do not reject Jesus because the evidence is simply not sufficient to persuade them. That evidence was overwhelming in the case of so many during the Lord's ministry. We saw that in John 6 a few weeks ago. 
And it certainly was the it certainly was that in the case of these men. They did not refuse to believe in him because intellectual honesty compelled them to embrace some other philosophy of life. No, they rejected Jesus because deep down he offended them. Because they disliked him. And because they were rebels against him and they would rather die than submit to him. I mean, the soldiers didn't think this out that night in Gethsemane, but that was what was at work, that anti-God, or maybe we should say that anti-Christ bias is what made them so indifferent to what had happened to them. And their personal encounter with the power of Christ did not cause their hearts to turn from their evil intentions and purpose. No, it just served to harden their hearts even more. And so in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you, that I am he, or I told you that I am. Jesus asked them twice who they were seeking. Twice they repeated their orders. We are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, look, I told you, I am he. As one commentator pointed out, that is a formal declaration of the warrant they had for the arrest of Jesus. You know, that was their orders. They were there to seek and arrest Jesus of Nazareth. Then Jesus said, so if you seek me, in other words, so if that's your warrant, that's what you're here for. So if you seek me, let these men go. In other words, you have no authority to arrest my disciples. Your warrant is for me, therefore, let these men go. And once again, Jesus took the initiative to secure the safety of his disciples. He was in complete control. He's the one giving the orders. He gave the command. He told the Roman soldiers and the temple officers to let the disciples go. And this is so so typical of Jesus. I mean, his first thought was not of himself and what he was about to suffer, but rather of his disciples and their care. And so on the face of his own arrest and all that he knows will come, Jesus makes sure that they will not be harmed. John says in verse 9, if you'll notice verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And this refers back to John 17, 12, where Jesus said that he had guarded them and that none except Judas had been lost. And although verse 9 refers to keeping them from arrest, that is symbolic of his keeping them spiritually. I mean, the disciples were not yet spiritually strong enough to endure persecution or martyrdom. And so keeping them from physical rest also kept them spiritually. Here we have a dramatic illustration of the good shepherd loving and protecting his weak sheep. I mean, not a hair of the disciples' heads was touched. So even though the shepherd would be taken, the sheep were allowed to flee unharmed. And it may have been at this point, we don't know for certain, but it could have been at this point that the kiss of Judas occurred. In Matthew 26, verse 49, we read, and he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And Luke tells us, but Jesus said to him, Judas, 
Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then back in Matthew, we read that Judas kissed him. And then Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And then Luke tells us, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, speaking of the disciples, when the disciples who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And Peter didn't wait for an answer. He had promised to die for Jesus, so he wasn't going to let Jesus be taken without a fight. I mean, Jesus had just floored the entire group with just the word, and now Peter thinks his sword is necessary to save the day. But that's Peter. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name, John tells us, was Malchus. You know, all four Gospels mention this incident, but only John tells us the man with the sword was Peter and that Malchus was the high priest's servant. And there's no doubt, I don't think, in anyone's mind that Peter was aiming at the head of Malchus and meant to kill him. But he was a fisherman, not a swordsman, and so he only got his ear. But no doubt, God alone prevented Peter from killing Malchus and endangering his own life and that of the other disciples. I mean, if Malchus had been killed, there may have been a fourth cross that day. So here's Peter. He drew his sword against hundreds of armed soldiers, but in just a few hours, he would deny the Lord three times. But at this point, he was prepared to take on hundreds all by himself for the sake of Jesus. And I tried to picture this scene in my mind. And I can almost see Malchus standing there, wide-eyed, blood, you know, pouring through his fingers, while at the same time, hundreds of steel blades are ringing from their scabbards all at once. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Matthew tells us, Jesus also said to Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter, put your sword back in its sheath because all of this has to be done in fulfillment of the Scriptures. You know, we, we talk about the cowardice and the failure of Peter but we should also never forget his great courage at this moment. I mean, he was ready to take on hundreds of armed Roman soldiers. But even though Peter was brave enough, loyal enough, and committed enough to try and defend Jesus against hopeless odds, his sword swinging was nothing but the self-confident energy of the flesh foolishly acting without thinking. It was just foolishness. And it wasn't foolish because he was hopelessly outnumbered. I guess you could say it was foolish uh, in that sense. But that wasn't why it was the most foolish. It was the most foolish, foolish because it interfered with what had to happen. 
It interfered with what God had ordained in eternity past and what the Lord had long said He was going to Jerusalem to precisely make happen. To be given into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified, laying down His life for the sins of the world. But here's Peter. He's still trying to keep Jesus from the cross. Even though Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples about His impending death, they just didn't get it. And so Peter's sword swinging shows that zeal without spiritual knowledge can lead to tragic actions. Tragic. As one commentator put it, the blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. We are, we are reminded of a fact of life. A man who was brave one moment in one situation can be a complete coward a short time later. And then John tells us, Jesus said to Peter, look back at verse 11. Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In John's gospel, as in the other three, the cup is the equivalent of the hour decreed by God in eternity past when the Father would lay upon Christ our sin and he would endure the wrath and judgment of God and lay down his life as the substitutionary atonement for our sin. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I understand your desire, I understand your impulse to defend me, but shall I, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, I understand why you brought out a sword, but it's wrong because I'm determined to do the Father's will. I'm determined to give my life as a ransom for many. Peter, I'm going to the cross. And on the cross, all of the judgment, everything you deserve, Peter, is going to fall on me. You can't prevent this. And so put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given you know, I'm comforted by this. <laughs> I'm comforted by what Peter does. Peter had been in training for three years under Jesus who had been telling him about this moment. Jesus had been saying, I didn't come to rule, I came to die. I came to give my life. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given into the hands of the chief priest. He had been telling Peter, getting him ready with the gospel up to this very moment. And then at the key moment when it arrives, what did Peter do? He got out his sword and he attacked. And I can't tell you how encouraged I am that Jesus uh, at this point didn't turn to the soldiers and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. Will you take this guy? I mean, seriously, why didn't Jesus look at him and say, I'm supposed to die for this person? This guy who denies me and everything I'm about in word and deed up to the very moment of my death? But he didn't. Why? Because of his faithful love. And this is faithful love. This is unyielding love. No amount of pain will stop Jesus Christ from saving us. No amount of our own stupidity will stop him from saving us. No amount of not practicing the gospel in our daily lives will stop him from loving us.
He knows our frame that we're but dust. He's the good shepherd who who watches over and cares for and keeps his sheep and he will not lose one of them. So although Peter may have shown great loyalty, he completely missed the point. What he did was based on a misunderstanding of God's redemptive plan and purpose. And after striking Malchus with his sword, Luke tells us, Jesus said, no more of this. And then Luke tells us, he, Jesus, touched his ear, touched the ear of Malchus, and healed him. And the word that Luke uses for ear literally means the little ear or the lobe of the ear. And so it may only have been a portion of his ear that was cut off. I mean, we don't know for certain, but according to what Luke said, it it perhaps was only a portion of his ear. And so that being the case, I mean, the servant Malchus, he could have lived a full life without part of his ear. I mean, it wouldn't have impaired his hearing at all. At worst, the damage would have been cosmetic. But Jesus would not tolerate so much as the loss of a piece of an ear in his defense. Because the only blood that was going to be shed would be his own. And so Luke tells us Jesus touched his ear. And the word means to hold and and press. So Jesus likely reached down, took the piece that had been cut off, held it in its proper place, and pressed against it, miraculously, instantaneously healing Malchus. And this was the last miracle the Lord performed before going to the cross. And he did so in front of this uh, massive crowd. You know, Jesus had preached, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Well, here he practiced what he preached. I mean, to the very end of his ministry, our Lord did good to his enemies and gave proof of his divine power. Well, after miraculously healing Malchus, you would think that the entire group would fall down again, only this time that they would fall down and worship. Not so. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they were unfazed by it. Demonstrating again the truth of what John had written earlier in his gospel. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Loved ones, miracles alone convert no one. No one. And so as in the case of Pharaoh, they only seem to make uh, some men harder and more wicked, as appears to be the case here. Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then from Luke 22, we learn, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then in Matthew we read, But all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. 
And then back in John, verse 12, we read, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And Luke says that they seized him and led him away. And so here we see the Lord Jesus walking away, probably with a soldier on each side, holding him by the arm. I mean, he could stop them in a moment with just a word, as everyone in the olive grove knew full well. But he didn't. Because his hour had come. And so he allowed sinful men to bind him and to lead him away. And so again, this is no victim. This is no victim. This is the all-powerful, all-glorious Son of God, willingly, voluntarily, in an act of supreme love and obedience, joyfully giving himself up to die in our place. I mean, John makes it very clear. That Jesus is the one who is in control, not the Roman soldiers, not the Jewish police and religious leaders, not Judas, certainly not the disciples. Jesus is in control because Jesus is Lord. Jesus was Lord at his death just as he was Lord at his birth and Lord in eternity past. Jesus is ever and always Lord. And he is Lord at this very moment. And I think many of us who profess to be Christians need to be reminded of this fact daily. I mean, does our world seem chaotic and out of control? Certainly does. You know, when governments collapse, when leaders die or are removed from office, when fear sends so many into a state of panic, we need to be reminded that our Lord is in absolute control of all things. And not only that, he is using all things to bring about his perfect plan and purpose. And loved ones, this does not mean that there will be no wounds and hurts and hardships and and trial and tribulations. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is that in the end, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for his glory. And remember, that good doesn't mean what we uh, may wish or what we want the outcome to be. The good spoken of there is our ultimate good, our glorification. Jesus is still Lord over every situation. He is Lord over every circumstance. He's Lord over every circumstance surrounding his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and death. And loved ones, Jesus is Lord over every situation and circumstance in your life and in mine. And that should be of great comfort to us. Because that means that that at all times, even when things seem to be falling apart around us, we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Because He is in absolute and complete control. And things aren't... uh, Uh, falling apart, they're simply, as someone has said, falling in place. This is merely God working to bring about his plan and purpose. And we can trust that. We can trust him. He is faithful. He is Lord. We can rest in that. Well, it's an amazing thing to read these first verses of John 18. 
and to realize that Jesus made no effort to save himself, but at the same time, he was saving his disciples. You know, he saved their physical lives by his actions and words in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested. But more importantly, he saved their spiritual lives and ours by his death on Calvary, his burial, and his resurrection. Thank the Lord for his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.